Well, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, the half-brother of Jesus. Tradition tells us that he came to Christ after the resurrection. He became a stalwart in the church. James begins his epistle, which we all know by tracking, scholarship knows by tracking the, the early documents, that this was likely the first book written in the New Testament, chronologically. Let me read the first 12 verses. We, we looked at the first four last week, and we're going to finish up through verse 12 tonight. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position, and the rich man is the glory in his humiliation, because like the flower and grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, And his flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The spring of 2020 will become a significant marker in all of our lives. We will talk about these months for generations, certainly the rest of our lives. Coronavirus, COVID-19, this pandemic will mark. We will think of life before and after this time. We will think of the months of being shut down. We will remember being alone. We will be, remember watching live streams. We will remember being afraid. But just for a moment, can I not discourage you, but give you a little head start? Look over at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 14. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Why is he saying that? It's based on a question raised in verse 13. Look back to verse 13. Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business to make a profit. What is he saying? He's very simply articulating that we don't know what's coming. We don't know what's happening. We were uh, uh, at a staff retreat in uh, December planning out the year. And none of us, none of us looked at the church calendar and imagined this. This is week eight of live stream, week eight of an empty building. None of us plan this, but let me remind you of what James reminds us, 
this is not the last trial we will ever see. We need to be careful thinking with confidence that we know how this is all going to end, how it's going to be resolved, and really be careful that we don't think there is a time when life gets back to normal and trials will go away. James says, no, you can't look at today and you can't be presumptuous about tomorrow in that way. The passage before us is intended for us not only to understand the motives and reasons in God's mind for our trials, for our difficulties, but he also tells us how we can grow and profit and benefit from trials. Unbelievers don't have this perspective. And I cannot, ima- I cannot emphasize rather enough how critically and deeply important it is for all of you, for each of you, for you personally, to have, to build, to shepherd, to protect your theology of trials. Every believer must have a strong understanding and theology of what trials are and what they're not, how to think about them and how not to think about them, how to anticipate them without fearing them. A little review. Last week we looked at the first four verses and we heard James's counsel concerning our attitude toward trials. And the attitude is uh, launched in verse 2. Consider it all joy. Welcome, my brethren, when, not if, when you encounter various trials. Now, without getting into this too much, the word for trial there is the exact same word used in the New Testament for temptations. And what that's saying is a temptation can be a trial, and a trial can be a temptation. Every trial we experience tempts us in certain ways. It tempts us to doubt God. It tempts us to question God. It tempts us to be suspicious of God's character. It tempts us to doubt God's word. How can we consider it joy? How can we consider it beneficial and, and, and welcome? Look at verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And we learned last time that trials are a way that God tests and strengthens our faith. Now remember, it's faith, not sight. It's the ability to believe who God is, what God has said, and what God has done in Christ for us, and that those realities, that theological construct, that theological framework actually guides our thinking when difficult circumstances happen. Adjust your attitude. Consider it joy. But you can only have a joyful mind in the midst of trials, knowing that God is doing something in our lives. He is testing. He is building. He is generating our faith. And let endurance, which is hupomone, the ability to remain in the trial, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect or mature and complete. You grow up. The things that are lacking in our faith are actually revealed and then solved in trials. Look at what it says. Lacking in nothing. If we respond then, according to James, rightly to our trials, the things in our faith which are lacked will be supplied. That's our attitude. But now he turns a key. He shifts on the hinge 
not from, uh, excuse me, from our attitude now to our actions. And this is really simple. It's a four-step approach, a four-step approach to adjusting your response to trials. The first is in verse 5. It shouldn't surprise anyone. Find your counsel in God. Find your counsel in God. That was the attitude, the way we're thinking about it. Okay, what do we do? What, give me some takeaways, James. Okay, he says, first of all, find your counsel in God, verse 5. But, and that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a strong full stop. If I'm going to have a good attitude about trials, how does that happen in my approach? But he knows that we're already rolling our eyes potentially and saying, how could this possibly work out? But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. Look, by picking up the word lacking, if any of you lacks wisdom, look back at the end of verse 4. We will lack in nothing. Do you see the connection there? If we lack in wisdom, it's because our attitude is broken. Our attitude readjusted will help us to not lack wisdom in the pursuit of it. I think it's interesting that James brings up wisdom. You know, there, there are two ways to follow God when you look at Scripture. The one is black and white, and the other one is not always as black and white. The black and white are all the moral imperatives. Uh, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. But then there's that category of wisdom. Which house to buy, which person to date and marry, which, which car to, to, to test drive, which which um, school to go to, which major to pick. Those are in the category of wisdom that are all governed by moral choices. Don't, don't hear me wrong. But those, added, those, those um, uh, decisions of wisdom are not book, chapter, verse decisions. I think it's interesting that James tells us if we lack wisdom, we should ask of God. That means we don't always have an exact book, chapter, verse, but we need to know how to respond in an appropriate and an exacting way. All governed by moral imperatives and moral principles, but this is about wisdom. The point is, if we lack wisdom as to the explanation of our trials and what they're for and what they're doing, we have the answer already supplied for us. They're trying to make us, they're attempting to make us more like Christ and to build our faith. But look at where he starts the perspective-altering action in the middle of this verse. Let him ask of God. If you don't know what to do, if you don't know how to do what you're doing, if you feel waylaid by, by emotions and feelings and you're overwhelmed by fears and discomfort, let him ask of God. Let him ask of God. Do you pray when you're afflicted with trials, when difficult circumstances come? Is your first knee-jerk response to go to God in prayer, or is it to go anywhere else but there, everywhere else but there? Look at the nature of God. He gives to all men generously, overwhelmingly 
without reproach, without holding back, back, without any hesitation, and it will be given to him. What a promise. This is a specific promise that God answers prayer in the midst of difficulty and circumstances. And to be quite honest, one of the things that I found that's, that's a, a consistent theme in my own trials when, when I, I experienced difficulties over the years and even in the last days and weeks and months is my prayer life increases and my prayer life deepens. That's a grace. That is a very kind grace of God. If you were to look at your best times and your most difficult times and were to ask yourself, when is my study of God's word, when is my prayer life most on fire and intense, for almost all of us, it's during the difficult circumstances. We can go to God. He invites us. When you're in trouble... Come to me, I'll give you wisdom for how to respond appropriately and rightly and grow from your difficulties. Now, true wisdom is more than mere facts or knowledge of facts. It involves moral discernment for sure, but it's rooted in the knowledge of God himself, knowing his heart and responding appropriately. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. We start with the attributes, the nature, the character of God, and that gives us an idea, multiple ideas, layers of ideas of knowing how God thinks about this world and us engaged in the trials of this world because we know God. Look over to James 3 because he comes back to this this, uh, theme of wisdom and it's very interestingly connected to those moral imperatives that we talked about but also being wise and making the best decisions. Look at James 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? We should answer James and says, well, well, those who are asking God for wisdom, right? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. I love that phrase, the gentleness of wisdom. You know what gentleness means? It's not this, this sweet, you know, fluffy bunny rabbit. Gentleness here is strength under control, self-control. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. See how the moral dimension comes into this wisdom? Verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, God's wisdom, is first pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed, that is wisdom, whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace." I think it's interesting that the relationship between our righteousness or our sinfulness and the acquisition of wisdom is paramount to James. God doesn't grant wisdom to those who are pursuing sin. But he wants us to be repenters of sin so that we can ask him and he can give generously and without holding anything back his wisdom. 
Colossians 2.1 says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for those who are at Laodicea, for those who have not personally seen my face. Paul says that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery. That is, listen, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, wisdom is not simply this this, um, abstract, ethereal, do this or do that and comparing choices. Wisdom is found in knowing Christ, knowing Jesus, knowing what he's like, knowing how he responded, seeing how he interacted in his life with all of the trials that he encountered and finding in him the source and the example of wisdom. All of us know the lesson of Job, the story of Job, rather. It's quite remarkable that Job, think about this, probably the first book written in the Old Testament, chronologically, James, the first book written in the New Testament, and both of them significantly deal with what? Trials. The very first Old Testament and New Testament books in Revelation automatically, by default, by God's design, started with our difficulties. That gives me great comfort that God is faithful to see to it that we, His people, are equipped with the needed wisdom to remain under hupomone, our trials. Look just for a moment, I, I can't resist, back at Job chapter 42. In Job 38, as you know, that's when God begins to help Job see himself. For 37 chapters, it's been a uh, a back and forth between Job and his friends of trying to figure out how to respond to Job's suffering without God as the center of their solar system. Then, chapter 38, verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, but... And he goes for, for two chapters on, um, on his nature, his, his character. But then comes verse, chapter 42. Job's final assessment. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is a great encouragement. Nothing God wants to do will ever be stopped. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me, God says. I have heard of you, Job says, with the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I repent, I repent in dust and ashes. Without going through those those four chapters previous to this, the simple point is that Job's trials dissolved in his understanding of God only to then rematerialize with God's perspective and they weren't the same. Back to James. 
Notice that the text tells us that God will answer our prayer for wisdom without reproach. In other words, he's not waiting and thrilled. He's there waiting, rather, and thrilled to give us wisdom, maturity, perspective, and insight that we need. God is waiting for us in prayer. What a gift. But note this. God always answers prayer in his way and in his time. And the person who prays must be sensitive to that. I... uh, I can find it very easy to be impatient when I ask God for resolution to my trials or help in my trials, and it doesn't snap right in the moment. But that, that in itself generates faith to believe that he will answer, to believe he's going to answer. When we find ourselves in the middle of our trouble, in the middle of our trials, our automatic reflex is to cry out and say, God, why me? But our reflexes are not always reliable. The answer of why you is because God loves and God cares. Maturity will change our perspective and even our reflex to ask God for wisdom instead of why. Grant me the wisdom I need to know to grow and glorify you through this trial. And when trials come, and they will, We are to find ourselves immediately in the throne room of God on our knees in prayer. He invites it. This is about going to God in prayer for his help, his comfort, his counsel, and his will and his glory. I love the fact that we studied this just a few weeks ago that Paul says almost something uh, parallel and identical. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4, 4. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. You're in a trial. Don't be anxious. How? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Same point. If you're anxious, you go to God in prayer. Now, footnote, that doesn't mean you don't talk to friends. That doesn't mean you, seek, you don't seek wise counsel. The book of Proverbs is chock full of that admonition. But that should be the secondary pursuit, not the primary. We talked about this last week, but I am just, I'm just overwhelmed at this little bitty section of Scripture in Psalm 119, verse 67, where the psalmist, in his maturity, looks back at his trials and actually gives us the equation, the other side of the equal sign for James's process here. Psalm 119, verse 67 Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, after I was afflicted, I had trials. Now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Then he says this. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. True maturity looks at the the things that generate anxiety, the things that are trials in our life, true maturity looks at that and finds thankfulness because that very trial exposes weaknesses in our faith, things which we lack, which wisdom then is granted by God to understand and to have a 
better theology, a better grasp on God, a better understanding of his word, a better relationship with our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it works out, Romans eight twenty eight for our good. You find wisdom in the Bible, you find wisdom by praying, and you find wisdom by seeking wise counsel. Make sure you import all three of those into your search for wisdom and trials. Find your counsel in God. That's the first step in what we're doing about these trials. Number two, fortify your faith with confidence. Fortify your faith, build it up with confidence. Verses 6 to 8 are are very interesting. But let him ask in faith. Stop right there. Ask who? God. This asking is the prayer. Let him pray. Ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts, like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Look at this result. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. There's the anchor point, the request being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's a condition for seeking God's wisdom, for getting it granted to you, and that condition is asking in faith. If this prayer for wisdom is to be effective, it must be made with trust and not doubting, with confidence and not doubting. Missing James' point here will cause you to fail the testing of your faith. I looked up uh, the word faith in an antonym dictionary. You know what an antonym is? It's an opposite. You know what the very first entry for the opposite of faith is? Doubt. Doubt. We are to ask in faith without any, any doubting. There's an element of confidence or trust that's needed if we're praying in faith without doubting. In other words, trusting that God and His ways are best. Practically, this means when trials come, we don't blame God, we don't... We don't uh, impugn God. We don't complain about the circumstances. Rather, we are convinced that this trial is indeed for our good and for God's glory. Now, does that mean that we have never have any doubts or never have any questions? Not at all. It does mean that when we do, that we go to the Lord in prayer first and confess those in those confusing doubts, and, and He can grant us faith. He will grant us faith. It would please our loving Father, so much. If we could use our, the pants, the knees on our pants, rather than our odometers and our phone bills, let me explain to you what I mean. When we have a trial, usually, where do we go and who do we call? We, we run to someone And there's a place for that, but it's secondary. What if the first thing we did when we encountered various trials is we dropped to our knees in prayer? James next gives a graphic illustration 
of a Christian doubting in the midst of a trial. He's, he's like water driven, tossed by the wind, the surf of the sea. Now, James, no doubt, growing up as, as Jesus' half-brother, in, grew up in Nazareth, not far from the Sea of Galilee. This is a picture of instability that he would have been very familiar with. The Sea of Galilee is not large, as we studied in the book of Mark, 15 miles or so long, 8 to 10 miles wide in different parts. It's always been the subject of frightful and violent storms. Matthew 8, Matthew 14, Mark records these as well. And it could have been that James had traveled even to the Mediterranean Sea, not very far from Nazareth, and seen the pounding surf smashing against the rocks on the sea of, from the Sea of Galilee. The point of this, this picture, surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, is simply a picture of instability. James uses this picture of an unsettled sea to illustrate the concept of being unstable. Instability robs your focus of the task at hand. I remember reading a lengthy book on D-Day. It's one of the most traumatic books, uh, histories I ever read. Some of the soldiers who were being transported from the, the, the big ship to the, uh, to the shore in these smaller boats... By the time they got to the shore, they were so wrought with seasickness, they didn't care about the war, they didn't care about the battle, they didn't even care about their lives. They just wanted to stop moving. We need to get to that point in our trials where we want the stability of God and His wisdom and insight and instruction so strongly that nothing else matters. Look at then the, the writer, verse 7. For let not that man, which man? The man who's asking without faith, the man who's doubting God's character, doubting God's word. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Wisdom, aid, comfort, power, perspective, Why? He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, just as there's a promise of wisdom if we ask in faith, there's the threat of frustration and exasperation if we doubt. The problem when we doubt is that we're, we're hesitating between at least two ways of thinking and bouncing back and forth, unstable, double-minded, Sometimes thinking that God and his ways are the solution and sometimes thinking that we can fix it ourselves. Or even throwing up our hands and saying there is no hope at all. That's an absolute assault on God's character and God's promise. The doubter tends to think of himself or herself as the victim of their circumstances rather than a participant in God's plan to make them mature. The God who controls all circumstances has never made one mistake in our lives. Internally in our hearts, externally in our circumstances. Whether it's nature or people, As Lamentations 3 tells us, God is providentially in control over it all. 
Fortify your faith with confidence. When I was in high school, there was a gentleman who, who discipled me. And I, it wasn't even called discipleship then. He, he met with me once a week on Thursday mornings, and we, we read through Colossians and talked about what, what it meant. He had a massive impact on my life. One of the things that I remember him saying to me over and over and over is, you're not a victim. You're not a victim if God is in control. Fortify your faith with confidence. Believe God. Take him at his word. That same man used to tell me all the time, faith is simply Taking God at his word. What a great definition. Taking God at his word. Believing him. Find your counsel in God. Fortify your faith with confidence. Number three, formulate your values by eternity. We won't spend a lot of time here. This is, this is ground that we have covered before. Formulate your values by eternity. Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. The rich man will. For the sun rises with a scorching wind. It withers the grass. Its flower falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of all his pursuits will fade away. What is this talking about? One of the effects of trials is that we tend to reassess life's real values. And that's exactly what James is addressing. Those who are poor are going to assess their values by their situation. Those who are rich are going to assess their values by their situation. But ultimately, both of them need to find their assessment in God, in their theology. The man in the humble circumstances, the poor man, should glory in his high position because of the gospel in Christ in heaven. The man who is rich, who seems to have, be able to, to buy his way out of most of his trials and problems, better be careful because his riches will fade away and you won't take it with you. Rich believers can become poor and poor believers can become poorer. Not just rich. That issue here is the poor in verse 9. The rich is the poor rich in verse 9. Their high position of Christ. And the rich poor in verses 10 to 11. James is simply saying we must formulate our values by eternity. Whether you're rich or poor, don't formulate your values by what's happening in your checking account. There's a bigger and a, and a greater reality to hold on to. My son, Luke, Luke was playing guitar tonight, and we were talking on the way in, and he gave me a great illustration I was so encouraged by uh, he was saying, you know, you know, when you're having a difficult way of thinking and you're, and you're having a difficult time in your trial in your life, it's like a pilot who has to learn, before he gets his final pilot license, he has to learn how to fly by instruments, his instrument rating, which means that he has to fly with no sight, not looking at all out of the plane, only looking right in front of him at the instruments. And what that means is you trust what the instruments are saying, no matter the turbulence, no matter the wind, 
No matter what you feel, you trust the altitude, you trust the airspeed, you trust the tilt, you trust the, the description of, of the um, altitude of your, the latitude of your, plan, of your, of your uh, wings. You, you look at those instruments and you trust them. I was encouraged by that. That's exactly what James is calling us to do here, to fly by our instruments. Even though we can't see everything as we want, we can still trust God because he's given us all the instruments we need in his word. Formulate your values by what's real and what's going to last and what's eternal, not just what's in front of you. Which leads automatically into number four, fix your attention then on heaven. Once you assess that value, you slide into fixing your attention on heaven, number four. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. That's where we started. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the man who perseveres under trial. Because once he, don't miss this, once he has been approved, refined by the testing, he actually learns the lesson, his faith is strengthened, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The text does not say, Blessed is the man who solves his trial or who gets bailed out during his trial. Rather, who remains under his trial. Who perseveres. Who bomone remains there and is changed by God's grace through difficulty. Now, much has been made about this crown of life and what it is exactly. If you want to have some... Some amusing reading. Just read a dozen commentaries on what this means and you will find a dozen answers. I don't think it's the crown of a king. I think what he's talking about here is a wreath of vine that was given to a victor in an athletic competition. It's not the crown of position. It's the crown of reward. You win the race, you get the wreath. You become king because your mom or dad was king or queen. Simply put, we have to be careful here that we don't think about earning heaven as a reward, but being with Christ is the full reward for loving him by faith. And James is talking about the prize of faith becoming sight. That's the crown of life. He crowns our existence with eternal life. Eternal life is Christ, John 17, 3 says. Knowing him, enjoying him, knowing the Father through him. Some trials are so severe that the only hope is that of heaven and eternity with Christ. The goal for James is not to get out of the trial, but to learn from the trial, have strengthened faith, and become more like Christ. And if this trial subsides that you're in now or that you're coming up to face, as we read in James 4, don't be so certain that's the last one you'll ever face. Why? Because God loves and cares enough about us to increase our faith by adding 
stress and difficulty onto our lives so that we can feel the full power of his assistance and his care and his loving comfort and his truth. To adjust your approach to trials, then, you must find your counsel in God, fortify your faith with confidence, formulate your values by eternity, which will lead you to fix your attention on the crown of life, which is heaven itself. There's a psalm that has been <coughs> particularly encouraging to me in, in how it ends. In Psalm 27, there is a, a little gem of hope that I have been so blessed by, and it's been a, a mind-altering game-changer for me when I find myself in trials. Psalm 27, verse 13. I would have despaired, David says. I would have been depressed. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord, yes, in the crown of life in heaven, but listen to this, in the land of the living. That's before we go to be with him in heaven. It's not simply that God will be our sustenance and our joy someday. He can be, he will be, he offers to be our sustenance and our joy now. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know If we can get to that question and answer it, to knowing what God is doing, knowing that God is doing something, knowing God is building our faith and has our good and best in mind from the trial that he has placed before us and placed us in, if we can get there, then we'll know how to think. And then we won't be susceptible to being tossed to and fro like a wave of instability by our feelings. Boy, I hope you know Christ. Without the joy of knowing the gospel and believing the gospel, there is no hope for trials, only despair and discouragement and depression. To know that my sins are paid for because he died instead of me. He died for me. To know that I need to be righteous to go to heaven and he gave me his righteousness. To know that The great threat of death is what makes me terrified and tremble, and yet he has taken away the threat and the fear of death. Once you have that settled, trials and perspective are both navigated with better ease. Please use this passage to talk about with your family, with your spouse, with your friends. It is a gift of God. As we said last week, Abraham was tested and didn't know it. Job was tested and didn't know it. You and I are tested and we are assured about it and we know it and we know exactly what God is doing. What a grace. What a kind grace of God. 
Take those truths into your week. Learn them, live them, and love them. Let me pray.